0: Thank you for listening to a sermon from The District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info@thedistrictchurch. Good morning, guys. How are we doing this morning? Good? Great. Yes. You guys are prepared. Um, I, I had a different introduction this morning. Um... And then the two songs that we sang, Satisfied and Oceans, made me think about a psalm I actually read this morning before service. And most of you know me, I'm not a morning person, and so to be up actually reading the Bible is very, very different for me. Um, But I want to read what I read because it it has to do with what we're going to be talking about today as well as what we just sang. It's Psalm 145, and it's not going to be on the screen. I didn't tell Ryan this, so don't blame him. But it says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his works and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all who look to you, and you give them food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him and to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fears him and he hears their cry and saves them. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we worship. The one who fills all of our desires. The one who comes in and saves and gives all that we need. And that's who we can rest in this morning. That's who we can... Praise! That's why we can sing. You satisfy the longing of our souls, because that's the truth that we believe. That's the God that we serve. And so, this morning, we're actually going to be reading Luke chapter fifteen. If you guys grew up in church, if you've been around church, you you might have even heard of this parable. It's the famous parable of the prodigal son. It's one of my favorite passages in all Scripture. Charles Dickens actually would go on to write that it's the greatest short story ever written. And it's one that's been close to my heart. It's one that has worked on me and been, I've been wrestling in this past season of my life. It's found in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. And what you'll see as we begin to read is you'll see that there are three characters the father, the younger son, and the older brother. But it's multi-layered. This passage isn't just about the father. It isn't just about the son who comes home. It's not about the older brother who's indifferent to his father and to his own sin. It's multi-layered. And it speaks to, speaks to us even 2,000 years later. So we're going to sit here in this passage this morning. And we're going to trust that the Lord is going to reveal more of himself through this passage. So if you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. Actually, I'm going to go ahead and pray and open up before we open up God's word and ask him to bless this time. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the truth that you show us through your word, that all the longings, all the wants, all the desires that we have can be satisfied in you. And Lord, I pray that as we open up your word this morning, I pray that as we look at the love of the Father, we are able to see more and more of the love you show us. More and more of the grace that you've shown us, Lord. And may it stir our affections this morning to know and love you more. Lord, as your servant, as your As your preacher and teacher this morning, use me. Use me as you see fit. Let the Holy Spirit work in me. Let the words of my heart, words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer in whom I trust. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning when we talk about the prodigal son, the word prodigal tends to bring up this word picture of one running home one who has come home, one who has lived a life of sin, rebelliousness, licentiousness, whatever you want to say, it brings this picture of one coming home. But in all actuality, if you look at the definition of what a prodigal means, and you can look this up and Google it if you'd like, but what prodigal means is a person who spends their resources in a reckless and extravagant way. And the interesting thing about the prodigal son, the passage of what we see as the prodigal son is, That word is only used one time in this passage. It's used when Luke describes the son as squandering his property in reckless living. And there's a reason that I bring that up. And the reason that I bring it up is because I believe, and you can disagree with me if you like, the titles on these passages aren't set in stone. They're not the word of God. They're just titles of the chapters. But I believe that the prodigal in this story is not the son but the Father. The Father who gives reckless and abandonment to his sons. The grace that he shows him, the love that he shows both of them. And that's going to lead me to my main and only point this morning. That God's reckless grace is our greatest hope. God's reckless grace is our greatest hope. There is nothing in this world that will ever satisfy the longing of our souls except God's grace. There is nothing that will turn the rebellious brother, sister, sibling, parents, whoever is in your life, there's nothing that will change the heart except God's grace. And that is the hope that we have. And I believe that's what Jesus is trying to teach us as we read this parable. I believe that's what he's trying to teach the listeners as he teaches this parable, a picture of God's reckless grace and mercy shown to both the rebellious and the religious. So if you'll go with me, Luke 15, I want to show you the audience because we have to see who God is speaking to before we understand why he's saying it. So Luke 15, starting in verse 1 and 2. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, there should be some around you. That's our gift to you. You can take one home, Um, but they will be available. And and like I said, the verses will be on the screen. So Luke chapter 15, starting in verse one. Now the tax collectors and the sinners. So we see the first group of people are sitting with Jesus and they're drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So we, t- we see two sets of people. We see the scribes and the Pharisees. We see the tax collectors and the sinners. We see the religious and we see the rebellious, both sitting in front of Jesus, both sitting at his feet. And we see this picture in today's society as well because this parable also applies to us. There is still rebellious and religious sitting at the feet of Jesus. The rebellious who are all about self-discovery, all about this relative lifestyle. Whatever pleases me, I'm going to do. I don't have to live by any rules of morality. I'm just going to do whatever I want. And then you have the religious, the moral conformity, the ones who conform to the rules, check off all the boxes. I've never done this, this, and this, and therefore I am good. And they both sit at the feet of Jesus. Jesus' parable shows us that both of these thoughts are wrong. Both of these ways of living are wrong and both need a savior. And so to this audience, Jesus is saying something that is very profound. What he's eventually getting at would get him killed. What he's coming onto the scene saying is what you know and believe about God is wrong. And because you're wrong, you need to repent and believe in the true love and grace of the Father. And I'm going to show you his love. Through this parable, he says the same thing to us. He says the same thing to our rebelliousness. He says the same thing to our self-righteousness, that that is not how God loves and shows grace. And you need to repent and believe in the true love and grace of the Father. He is redefining our view of God, the Father, and his reckless grace and his reckless love towards us. So let's take a look at this parable, starting in verse 11. And he said, this is Jesus speaking, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now I want to stop right there. And don't worry, I'm not going to stop every single verse. We will get through this passage. But what we see in this scene is we have a father who has two sons. We have a very wealthy father who has two sons, so wealthy that he's able to give a portion to his son and not feel hurt about it. But what we see in this younger son, what he is saying to the father when he asks for his portion of the estate, He's saying, I want your stuff. I don't want you. And in this time, what is really being said is the son saying, I would rather have you dead so that I can have your stuff. You see, in the Old Testament, as well as the Jewish times, a father would settle his estate towards his his children. The older sibling would get two-thirds of the estate. So if you're an older sibling in here, yes, that's us. We get that. And then the younger siblings have to divide the last third of the estate. And so since we have two sons, we have two thirds and one third. And that's what the son is asking for. Give me my third of this portion. And more often than not, the father could actually divide his estate when he was alive, but this usually happened after he died. And that's why we see the son basically saying, I would rather have you dead so that I can have your stuff. He's rejecting the father's provision, he's rejecting the father's love, and he's rejecting the father himself. Now I don't know about you. I, I don't have any children. I don't have kids, so I I can't sit there and say, I know how this feels but i can only imagine that this has to be the most painful thing a parent can hear this has to be one of the most painful things a parent can experience to where their child says i'm rejecting you i would rather have you dead so that i can have your stuff but here's what i can say as a son and daughter of god is that we don't often look at our sin in light of his holiness we don't often look at our sin in light of us rejecting him for himself. You see, when we sin, we do the same thing as this rebellious son. We say, I want your gifts over the gift giver. I want this sin, I want this pleasure over finding joy in you. And when we choose to pursue our, same, or our own way of living, we are doing the same thing as the rebellious son, rejecting the love and provision of the father. And that's how we should look at our sin, is rejecting the Father. It isn't just something that we're doing that's bad. It is rejecting God. And it grieves him. But the interesting thing in this story, right off the bat, we see the grace and mercy of the Father. He divides his property. We see that in the end of verse 12 the father divided his property between his sons. Now, if you're sitting in this circle, if you're sitting in this scene with tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and scribes, you can just kind of feel the tension. Build this tension up. Because at that time, Jewish law would actually allow the father to stone his son. That is how serious this offense was that the son would come up to the father and say, give me what I deserve because he is being disrespectful and disobedient and the father had every right to throw him out. And I can guarantee you that's what the Pharisees and the scribes were waiting for. They were waiting for Jesus to drop the hammer so that those sinners and those tax collectors could hear this is how God is going to treat you because you are wrong. You are unclean. You see, the problem with the Pharisees and the, and, the, and and the scribes is that their attitude towards the unclean was very disheartening. The statement that they make in the verse in verse one is that he receives sinners and eats with them, is a statement of disgust, is a statement in which they are appalled that Jesus would be sitting with unclean sinners. And actually, a phrase that goes a little bit further to show how much they hated these people, they would often say, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated by God. They would rather look forward to the destruction of the sinner than the salvation of them. And that's the attitude they have. So can you imagine hearing that when the father gets His request from his son that the father actually divides his estate? They would have been furious. They would have been shocked. If they were live tweeting this, they would have been like, hashtag shocked. I can't believe Jesus just did this. You can just hear the gasps. You can hear them saying, This is not how the father acts. The father doesn't divide his property. And that's not how the father should have responded. The Old Testament gave him every right to throw his son out, to discipline his son, and even to stone him. But that's not what the father did. The father gave his property to his son, lovingly and in pain, divided that property. And this is one of the hardest things that I've learned from this passage and if I tear up I'm, I'm sorry I'm not really sorry but sometimes guys the best thing you can do for a rebellious person is to give them what they want and let them go is to give them what they want and to say I'm, I'm here for you I love you and that will never change because you love them You pray for them and you take the opportunities to show how much you truly care. Without giving them the words that you think are gonna change their mind, without giving them the condemnation that they probably deserve. You know, you just say, I love you. I'm here for you and that will never change. Because this is what the Father did. In pain, probably in tears, He divided his property for his son, knowing that this longing, this freedom that the son wanted was never going to satisfy him. And this is how, this is how we have to act sometimes. But you know what makes God glorious in these moments? You know what makes God look glorious in these times of pain, in these times of waiting, and these moments and seasons of angst, is when we hope when all seems hopeless. When we plant our flag in the gospel and say, my heart and my flesh may fail me, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, and I will keep putting my hope in Him, because He's the only one that can change this situation. He's the only one that can change the heart of the rebellious son, daughter, child. He can, he will, and even if he doesn't, I will praise him. That's what makes God look glorious in our time of waiting. That's what makes God look glorious to those around us who feel that all is hopeless, all is lost. That's what makes God look massive, in the midst of our waiting. And I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you have a sibling who has run away or is choosing to live a life that you're saying, no, you're not going to find satisfaction or joy in that lifestyle. Maybe you have a wayward parent who is antagonistic to the gospel and won't see the light and truth in front of them. Maybe you have a loved one that you're just longing to come back home. My encouragement to you this morning is don't give up hope. David says in Psalm 62, For God alone my soul waits in silence, for my hope is in Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, and I shall not be shaken. On God rest my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is Him. Trust in Him at all times, O people, Pour out your heart. Hear what he has to say. Cry out to God in your time of waiting and in hopelessness, pour out your heart to him because he is our refuge. And That's my encouragement to you this morning. In that time and midst of waiting for the rebellious son or daughter or loved one to come home, keep hoping and keep waiting because as long as there is breath in their lungs hope can be had. The next thing I want to show you guys is the futility the futility in putting our hope in non-eternal sources. If you look back with me to verse 13 it says Not many days later the young son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything and a severe famine arose in that country he began to be in need so he went and hired himself out to one of his citizens of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs and he was longing to be fed with the pods of those pigs but no one gave him anything now at this moment you have to think about the Pharisees again the tax collectors the sinners and the scribes, all who are listening. You have a furious crowd that the father would give something to his son, and then they're like, see, we told you he would go and squander everything he was given. We knew that boy would act like that. But the people who would really be on the edge of their seats are going to be the rebellious, because they can empathize with that younger son. They can say, yep, I've been there. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be off in the far country, to squander all that I have and just be lost and wanting more. And that's what Jesus did whenever he spoke to the sinners, to the tax collectors, to the gluttons. What he did was he showed them the futility of their living. He didn't condemn them like the Pharisees did. He didn't say, you need to change or you're gonna go to hell. No, what he did was he showed them the futility of their living longings. He showed them the futility of their lifestyle and how they are always going to be trapped and enslaved to that lifestyle. And all their wants and all their desires will never be met with things here on earth. And guys, maybe that's a better model for us to follow. Am I right? Instead of coming before others and saying, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, change. We just talk about, hey, Every time you go out on Friday night, don't you feel a little bit more like you need something else? Every time you sleep with that person, don't you feel a longing in your soul? Every time you try to get higher end on your job or get that new promotion, more money, next car, whatever it may be, don't you feel like you're still missing something? And instead of condemnation, we show the futility of this world the futility of non-eternal things. Maybe that's a better way that we can show people the need of the gospel and the longings that they have that can be satisfied in Christ and Christ alone. Because that's what Jesus did here. He shows them the reckless life of the prodigal and how going out and living and squandering, which was probably fun, I mean, if we think about it, right? The younger son went out and he lived his life Because honestly, guys, and I'm going to say this, and it may sound wrong, but it is biblical. If your sinning doesn't cause you to have fun, you're doing it wrong. I mean, you're just doing it wrong. But it's a momentary, fleeting pleasure. And that is biblical. I promise you, there's a scripture for that. But Jesus shows, he shows the rebellious people. He shows us that this lifestyle only leads to more longing and it leads, it leads to slavery and it's futile. It's vain, as Solomon would tell us. And Jesus uses a word picture here when he talks about the son being hired out by a landowner. That Greek word picture actually means that he attached himself to that landowner. Do you see the craziness of that? He detached himself from his wealthy, providing, loving father and thought that he would have freedom in his sin. He thought he would have freedom in his choices. He thought he would have freedom in his rebellion, in his pleasure. But then he loses everything like that. And then he goes and attaches himself to a landowner. And not only just a landowner, scripture actually shows us that he went out into a Gentile country, which no good Jewish boy would do. And we see that by him working with pigs. That's the lowest of the low. His living led him into slavery. His freedom actually led him into slavery. And that's what sin does in our lives. Because it's futile, there is no hope, and it makes us long for more. But then we see, we see the reckless hope of the Father. We see hope in this story. One who recklessly gives his love and forgiveness without anything in return. Look with me in verse 17. It says, but when he came to himself. So we're talking about the son. He's sitting in these pods with pigs and he has a realization And he says to himself, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And had compassion, and ran, and embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, "Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father." Guys, if, I mean, I just want to stop right here. If you ever get to places in Scripture where it says "but God," or "but the father," circle it, because it is a beautiful transitional phrase, and we see it over and over in this parable. But the father. The father says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let, let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is why the rebellious people are on the edge of their seats. This is why the rebellious people love to hear Jesus preach and teach, and so should we, because they see the futility of their lives, and then they see hope. They see hope in their longings. And one of the reasons that I think that Jesus is always around the sinners, always around the drunkards and the gluttons and the tax collectors, is because he's not only there to show them their futility and thinking but to bring them hope. And this part of the story once again would have infuriated, it would have infuriated the scribes and the Pharisees to see a father run now back to someone who has squandered all of his property. How dare the father act like that? But we see the love of the father running and embracing his son. This is where Jesus is redefining the love of God. You see, the father runs to his son. He embraces his son. He doesn't listen to his plea. He's not listening to the speech that he worked up. You know, you've probably been there, right? Coming before your parents and saying, man, I just need to say these right things and so they won't be too mad at me. Am I right? I think we can all be there. And this is what the son tried to do. He tried to conjure up a speech so that the father would forgive him and the father would hire him out. Which, by the way, if you look at this speech, it's very ironic. Because what we have here is the son saying, hire me, feed me, and I'll keep my distance. I'll work for you until I can pay off this debt. You see the irony there? the father has run out to him. He's embraced him. He's kissed him. He's trying to bring him back into the family. And all the son can say is, I will work for you. I will work for your forgiveness. I will work to pay off this debt. How ironic that he is trying to work to receive a gift that's already been given to him. And how often do we do the same? How often do we stand before God, even though we are saved by the free gift of grace through Christ on the cross, and we sit there and say, Lord, I need to do something to earn your forgiveness. Or we try to live a life of works in order to appease God, that he would delight in us, because we can't fathom the free gift of grace God has given us. And isn't this exactly what the other side pushes on people? Isn't this exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes tell us to do? Aren't we falling into the same trap of religion that ignores the love of God already given to us and trying to work out the grace that's been freely bestowed through Christ? And isn't that where our hearts tend to be pulled? Isn't that where we tend to land more often than not because we can't believe that God would give us such a free gift of grace. And Jesus comes again, redefining the Father's love, showing us that salvation is through repentance and faith, not repentance and works. And we see this picture of the Father, his love for his Son. He's running out to his Son. He's running to embrace his Son. And the beauty of this the beauty of this is the, the running father. He's running out to his son. And why it's so beautiful is because old men don't run. And I'm not trying to put down any older men here. He's a little bit older than me. But old men don't run. Eastern old men don't run. We find it funny that an old man might be running in this story But a Pharisee, a scribe, seeing an older man, a wise old man who owns his own city, owns his own property, he doesn't run. It brings shame if he was to run. And what does the Father do? He takes that shame anyways. He runs to the son saying, I don't care what people are going to think. I don't care that they see my son who they knew squandered my property. I don't care. I'm going to take the shame of my son on me because he has finally come home. So he runs. He endures the shame. Spurgeon, in talking about the father running out, says, Slow are the steps of repentance, but swift are the feet of forgiveness. God can run where we can barely limp and the father may be out of breath, but he is never out of love. And we see the father running to his son, embracing him, cutting off his speech mid-sentence. I don't even want to hear what you have to say. I don't care that you're trying to be a servant. You are my son. And there's nothing you can do to change that. The father then gives him a robe And you look, he gives him a robe. He doesn't tell him, go take a shower, then I'll give you the robe. No, we see this beautiful picture of the father giving an uncleanly son, an unclean son who probably still smells like those pigs. He puts a beautiful robe on him. He covers him in his uncleanness. And the father gives him a ring, which indicates that he is a son in the family. This is my son. Everything that I have is his. He gives him sandals, which at that time meant that he wasn't a servant because family wore sandals in those times. If you're walking in the house, you have sandals, you're family. And then he grabs the fattened calf and they have a feast. They celebrate because my son was once lost and now he is found. He was once dead, but now he is alive. And there is nothing more that the father wants to do than to celebrate with his son. This is the love of the Father for those who are far off. We see this summed up in this trilogy of parables. If you guys have ever read Luke 15, I would encourage you to do that throughout this week. But there are two other parables before this one. A man loses his sheep, one out of a hundred. He, he, he goes and searches the mountainside and finally finds the sheep, runs back to his buddies, one out of ninety-nine and says, I have found this sheep, and they celebrate. A woman loses her coin, and and she turns her house upside down, and when she finds that coin, she celebrates with her friends. I found this lost coin, one out of ten. But now, to close the trilogy out, a son has been lost and is found, one out of two. And the significance of these numbers is the weight of increasing value. You know, it's, If you lose your keys, there's going to be some type of panic, especially if you have to get to work, right? But if you lose your wallet and the money that's in it, the credit cards, there's probably going to be a little bit more panic, increasing panic than you losing your keys. But if you lose your child, the panic and the anxiety that comes is is nothing, is, is larger in comparison to losing a wallet or key. And that is what God is trying to show us here. The increasing value of the thing that is lost. And here it's a son. It's a daughter. And so God shows us this weight. Shows us the value of a sinner coming back to him. And guys, I I want to tell you this. God does not stop loving you even when you're in the far off country of rebellion. He is still loving you He is still drawing you home. And if we think about the recklessness of this father, we have to think about the squandered property. Who takes that on? Who absorbs that? It's not the son. It's not the son. The father doesn't even hear him saying, I'll work for you to pay this off. No, the father absorbs the squandering property of the Son. And he does the same for us. He absorbs our sin in Christ on the cross. He absorbs the full wrath of God on the cross so that he can bring us into the family. And Jesus is showing here, once again, redefining the love of the Father towards the sinner. Now, at this point, again, I I want to keep going back to the listener's the Pharisees, the scribes, the tax collectors, the sinners. At this point, if we're back in the crowd, man, some people just got to be pissed. I'm sure that they got up and left. How dare he talk about the father like this? We're going to kill him. But in this parable, if we'll notice the last two parables didn't have an older brother. It didn't have a self-righteous character. So what does Jesus do in this last parable? He gives us the picture of the older brother. He brings this older brother in. And I believe he did this to show the Pharisees and the scribes what they are like, what their heart is revealing when the sinner comes home, the self-righteous attitude towards others. So let's take a look at his response Verse 25 says, Now this older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of his servants and asked, What are these things? And he said to him, Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry, and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But the son answered to his father, Look, These many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came home, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to his son, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours, It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now to be honest with you, reading this passage, this is where I land more often than not. This is where I land. I tend to be the older brother, looking at my goodness, looking at how I have followed the rules Anyone else in here like that? You don't have to raise your hands. I know every one of you agree with me. The moral conformity crowd. The check the boxes off. I have done all these good things and therefore I should receive this. The one who looks at another and compares your sin to theirs. And if we play that game, if we're honest, we're always going to win, right? We turn on the TV and say, you know what? I'm not as bad as that person. I live my life, I have a good job, I take care of my kids, I have a 401k, I don't curse, I don't drink, I don't go and watch rated R movies except The Passion of Christ. (laughs) I do the right things, therefore I am good. I deserve the party, I deserve the recognition, I deserve the celebration, and we measure our self-righteousness against others. Because I have done all these things, God should give me this. And that's the problem Jesus is getting at. Our moral conformity, our self-righteousness, and our pursuit of self without grace-driven effort, guys, is just empty and futile. That's what the Father is saying to the Son. Why are you being so self-righteous? Why are you acting indignant and indifferent towards your brother? It's the same thing. It's landing and being against and upset that God would give somebody who we don't think deserves that gift that belongs to us. We we get upset at that. We can't celebrate other people's victories because we don't think that's what they deserve because we know how their lifestyle is. But here's the other thing about self-righteous living. And here's where I actually probably fall into it more often than not. The reason that we get upset with people like the younger brother or we feel uncomfortable around those who sin differently than we do is because of our own goodness. It's because of our own goodness. I'm I'm good. And we view our goodness in light of other people's sins instead of looking at our sin in light of God's holiness. Tim Keller on this passage, when he talks about the older brother, says that we need to learn how to repent for something besides our sin. We can't just repent of our bad things. Oh, I cursed today. I'm sorry, Lord. Or I got angry. I'm sorry. Or I flipped somebody off because they cut me off in traffic. I'm I'm sorry. No, we have to repent of our goodness, of our self-righteousness of our not being able to celebrate others because we think we deserve what they got. And statements like that, statements of self-righteousness, they reveal our heart, don't they? That's what Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So even in our self-righteous laments, we are revealing our own hearts. Now, there was a moment in my life, maybe not just a moment, as a situation that happened. As I'm thinking about the older brother, I'm thinking about how often I fall into this trap of comparison. I was, think back to a breakfast one morning I had with one of my friends, one of my mentors. And we were talking about humility, and we we're talking about the arrogance of another individual. And I said to him, I wish this person could go through a traumatic experience like myself in order for God to humble them. You see what I did there? I elevated my own humility as if it's the standard in which we need to live. Now, great. I'm grateful for my friend who immediately rebuked me, immediately said, Do you even hear what you just said? And we praise God for that. But that's the tendency we fall into. That's the old brother mentality that we tend to have when it comes to comparing our lives and our goodness and our own humility to somebody else this is what we do we try to stack up our own goodness to others even under other, other believers it's probably even more to the other believer we become that older brother upset the dad in our eyes would waste a party that was meant for us but here's what the father does he initiates once again the love towards his son. As the father has shown grace to the younger brother, he also shows grace to the older brother. He initiates this love and this grace that he's showing to him. And he does this by coming outside. You notice that in both settings for the sons, he comes to them. He runs to the younger brother. He comes outside to the older brother. He could have told a servant to just go say, you know what, send my son in here. And if he he refuses, tell him I'm going to whoop his butt. That's what he could have said. He could have told him, get your butt in here. We're celebrating. We'll talk about this later. But he goes outside. He entreats him. He pleads with him. He recklessly extends the grace once again to a defiant, arrogant son. And at this point, the older son lands in the same disobedience and disrespectfulness as the younger son. The same rebellious attitude and disrespectful attitude attitude that we saw in the beginning is now the older brother. He's indifferent to his father. He's disrespectful and disobedient. And the father, what does the father do? He doesn't even listen to the disrespectfulness. He blows it off and says, all that I have is yours. What are you complaining about? And he reminds him where he stands in the family. He shows him the futility of his self-righteous attitude. And he pleads with him to come inside and celebrate the return of his brother, who was once lost and now is found. And this is the picture of what Jesus is showing to the Pharisees, to the scribes, and to us when we have a self-righteous heart towards those who we deem as less than. And then all of a sudden, the parable ends. And to me, this is not normal in my American Christian view of things. The movie should have ended with the Father and the Son walking arm-in arm into the sunset. I mean, right? I mean, that's, that's normally how things end here. But that's not how the parable ends. That's not how Jesus ends this, this teaching. We don't get any closure. Like the show "Lost," we just don't get any closure. And I don't care what you guys think about that show. There is no closure in that thing. We'll talk about that later. But I think Jesus does this for a reason. I think he does it for a reason for the the Pharisees, the tax collectors, the sinners, the scribes, those who are listening in that day, and he also does it for us because it makes us pose the question, which one are you? Where do you land? Where does your heart pull? Is it rebelliousness? Is it running from God? Or is it self righteousness? Is it religiousness? Or let's be real, maybe it's both. We've been given a picture of God's love and grace for us because both the rebellious and the righteous need it. Both are lost in futile thinking and in need of a Savior. And guys, that savior comes through the third brother. Now, some of you may have heard that and go, wait a minute, what? There was only two brothers in this story. But there is a third brother. And that third brother's telling the story. He is the true older brother who saw the agony of the father and said, Dad, I'm going to go get them. I'm going to look for my two lost brothers And even if they have ruined themselves, even if they have squandered all that they have, I will bring them back even if it's at my own expense. I will take the full brunt of their squanderings. I will take their shame, their uncleanliness, and their sin, and I will bring them back. That's the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin. So that those who knew, sorry, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange, the elder brother, Jesus on the cross takes our sin, takes our shame, takes our religiousness and self-righteousness and takes it upon himself and puts it to death on the cross in order for us to then receive his righteousness. Jesus is that greater brother. Jesus is that Savior who takes on all that we need in order to receive something we don't deserve. You see, believing in Christ, believing in this truth, it's not just managing our sin, managing our temptation. That's not what it means to be in Christ. Because you can try harder. You can put in more effort, but trusting in him, trusting in him is only going to be joyful for us when we see that we have to lay down all of our efforts, all of our strength and say, I trust in Jesus. Whether it is self-righteousness or rebelliousness, we lay all of that down and trust in the perfection and the power of Christ. And trust in his resurrection. That he has defeated sin and death for us. He's the only one that can make us free from these two thoughts. These two ways of living. This futile living that we place in rebellion or self-righteousness. He's the only one that can free us. And this is why, this is why I see that the parable of the prodigal son should not be son, but it should be the prodigal father, the one who gives reckless grace and love so that we can be brought into the family, so that we can feast and celebrate with the Lord, so that we can be sons and daughters in whom he delights in, because without it we are dead. We are dead in our futility, living in rebellion or living in self-righteousness. And on the cross, we see the Father's grace and mercy poured out on us through Christ, conquering our rebellion, defeating us in our self-righteousness. And we see the Father running to us, taking on our shame, cutting off all of our speeches, all of our self-help, all of us trying to do better so that he can love us, calming all of our anxieties, welcoming us home, clothing us in righteousness and satisfying the longing of our souls. This is the reckless grace of the Father that has been given to us through Christ on the cross. And my prayer this morning as we look at this parable, as we walk in these truths, is that this would stir our affections for him this would lead us to hope more in him when times seem hopeless. This is the truth that I pray we rest in. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. Lord, you are good to both the rebellious and the self-righteous and what I find myself in both. Lord, you are better than the things that we have been chasing. The futility of this life. You are the joy in all of our trials, and all of our pain, and all of our storms. Lord, you're stronger than anything that we hold on to. Lord, as we look at the parable of the prodigal son, the, the redefinition of the father and his love, Lord, may it stir our affections for you. May it comfort us in our times of hopelessness. And may it bring us joy in the storms. Fix our eyes on you, Lord, this morning. Fix our eyes so we consistently see. Cause our minds to constantly think and give our hearts a new song to sing. And fill our lungs so that we will always breathe you, Lord. For you are beautiful and you satisfy the longing of our souls. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that you are a picture of a father who runs to us, embraces us, adopts us, doesn't listen to our words or trying to manipulate a situation to where we try to earn back your love. You say, No, you're my son, you're my daughter. I am well pleased and I delight in you. Lord, may we rest in that this week. May we rest in that truth and that promise. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from The District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at at infothedistrict.church?